Hi, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast, where experts answer questions and share real-world examples that you, the listener, can incorporate as part of your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Today, David Gernberg from Riverside 1031 will share how to defer and even eliminate capital gain taxes on depreciation and appreciation. And then Len Berkowitz from Riverside Tax will discuss the strategy to accelerate depreciation that can put tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and maybe even millions of dollars to work for you today instead of years from now. Both accomplished attorneys each head up their respective divisions at Riverside Abstract. Without any further ado, let's get started. Len, David, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having us here, Bill. Bill, it's a pleasure to be here. We're looking forward to chatting. Just so our listeners have a little background on the different divisions here, we have Riverside Abstract, and then we have Tax, T-A-C-S, and then we have Riverside 1031. Len, why don't you tell us a little bit about that breakdown? Riverside Abstract is a company that was founded 2007. It's a full-service title company. Uh, it operates in 35 or 38 states, and it has multiple divisions. One division, which opened up about a year ago, is Riverside Tax. Riverside Tax, tax stands for, it's not T-A-X, but it's a little play on words, tax advisory and cost segregation. And that division does two things. We do some international tax work and cost segregation. David, tell us a little bit about Riverside 1031. So Riverside 1031 is the third division, and we help clients structure tax-deferred exchanges under Internal Revenue Code Section 1031. When did Riverside establish the 1031 division? The 1031 unit is eight years old. What we'd like to do for the listeners today is really uh, share some interesting information about 1031 exchange about cost segregation, so that they can apply some of these strategies to their own portfolio, either during planning for acquisition, when they hold the property, and also at disposition. So David, I'm going to ask you some questions around 1031. Is there, is there any data about the popularity of the strategy? Like how many people are using it as opposed to people that just go ahead and pay the taxes? Uh, interestingly, a few years ago, many different organizations were doing some data gathering in anticipation uh, of tax reform. And, and what we found is that, according to the National Association of Realtors, approximately 6% of all realis- uh, commercial real estate transactions involve a Section 1031 exchange. But in some states like California, Oregon, Colorado, Arizona, New York, higher tax states, uh, it's closer to 20%. And so somewhere between 90, 80%, 94% of people are actually not using this. Wow. So why would someone want to use a 1031 exchange? 1031, I guess, has to do with the IRS code. Right. We call it a 1031 exchange. It's named after Section 1031 of the Internal Revenue Code. And what a 1031 exchange does is it allows investors to play Monopoly with real property and real money and not pay capital gains tax or depreciation recapture tax when they sell Pennsylvania Avenue to buy Boardwalk. 
So it enables somebody to eliminate the capital gains tax or defer the capital gains tax? How does that work? Well, it, it can be both. It starts off as a tax deferral strategy. If you structure your 1031 exchange, if you structure your transaction as a 1031 exchange, then what you have done for the short term is you have deferred the depreciation recapture and the capital gains on the sale of your first asset, and you've attached those now to the new asset that you've replaced it with. And each time you do a 1031 exchange with each of those new successive properties, you're continuing to defer and to roll uh, those taxes into the next property. If you finally sell that last property, you have to pay the piper and recognize all of those taxes that you had been avoiding all of those years. However, if you're willing to include one important strategy or one important technique into the strategy, you can completely avoid the taxes, and that is you have to be willing to die. Because when you die, your heirs inherit the property at a stepped-up basis, and all of that depreciation recapture and all of that capital gains goes away. But you got to be willing to go into the uh, next world, I guess, in order for that to happen. That's correct. Right. Well, you know, it's funny that we're talking about taxes because there are two things that are guaranteed, taxes and death. But I guess in this case, it's really only one of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. If, if you're, if you're going to structure the transaction that way and keep it going, you can avoid the taxes. Right. Okay. So that's, uh, that's a good strategy. It's a good strategy because everyone, everyone's going to uh, go there someday. David, you help with the death structuring or just the 1031 transaction? No, we don't help with the debt structuring. I think the, the, the governmental authorities frown upon that. All right, Dave, we're glad to hear that. Uh, let's get back to it a little bit. That, 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 was, that was cute for us to do that, but let's get back to uh, the strategy. Let's say someone had a property that they paid a million for, and I'm going to keep it simple because I know, I know you have to take the land value out, right? When you're doing no, this? No, actually, you don't. It's, it's the whole value. Oh, it's the whole value. Okay, great. So- so let's say someone paid a million dollars for a property and they owned it for a period of time and they depreciated it down to $400,000. So now when they close, if they didn't do a 1031 exchange, they would have to pay taxes on how much? Well, we didn't discuss how much they're selling it for, but let's just talk about the depreciation for the moment. Oh, that's right. Because I said they, I, I said they bought it for a million. They depreciated it down to four hundred thousand. Okay, let's say they sell it for two million. Okay, we have two numbers here to worry about. We depreciated six hundred thousand dollars, and we appreciated one million dollars. So we have two sets of taxes here. We have depreciation recapture on six hundred thousand dollars. To the federal government, that's 25%, and then the state-level tax, and that varies by, by the 50 states. We then have the appreciation here of a million dollars, and that varies by your tax bracket, both to the feds and to the states. So we're going to lose, I tell people that when they're selling a piece of property, if they estimate that they will lose roughly a third of their profits, they'll come close to estimating what the total tax bite will be. So you think that the total tax bite will typically equal around a third of your profits? Typically. Some people a little more, some people a little less. In this case, the profit is a million dollars because you paid a million, you sold it for two million. So 
the real true cash profit is a million dollars. If we use that equation that you just mentioned, that would be around $330,000, which is a third of a million dollars. That's right. So now let me show you how it works. Okay. You have $600,000 in depreciation. The federal recapture, depreciation recapture tax on that is 25%. So there's $150,000 there. And then the federal capital gains tax on the $1 million in appreciation is another roughly 20% or $200,000. So there's one fifty plus two hundred. dollars there's $350,000 there, plus whatever your state level tax is on the appreciation, which varies from state to state, figure 3% to 9%. So estimating a third of your profits on the sale of a property gets you pretty close. You talked about the uh, depreciation recapture, and then you talked about the tax on the profit. So the 1031 exchange allows you to defer and possibly eventually eliminate both of those or just one of those? Both of those. Both of those. All right. So now I've, I've done this 1031 exchange. I, I have to buy something for over $2 million, Is that right? I have to buy something for equal or greater than the $2 million. Now I buy something for uh, $5 million, And now I own this piece of property for another 10 years. And I depreciate it down to $4 million. And now I'm going to have depreciation recapture of a million. And if it's worth $10 million, I have appreciation of $5 million. And if I do another 1031 for something equal to or greater than $10 million, that's going to be step two in my tax deferment strategy. Is that right? Correct. Oh, that's pretty cool. David. You talked before about when someone passes away and they leave it to their heirs. Share with the listeners a little bit about how basis works. You know, let's say you've done this three, four, five times for this one piece of property that you started with. I would imagine the basis changes each time based on the ratio between actual cash profit and the depreciation. So the basis in each new property is equal to the adjusted basis in the old property plus any new cash. Your original example, we had that first property that depreciated, that we bought for a million and depreciated down to $400,000 that we then sold for two and we bought a new property for 5 million. We had $400,000 in basis in the old property plus $3 million in new cash. There's our basis in that new property. So we're now at $3 million four on the $5 million property. So now what happens when you pass away? What, what is the stepped-up basis? What does that mean? So what that now means, following this along, that property then, uh, at the time of grandpa's death, becomes a $10 million property, let's assume. Or grandma. Grandma could be grandma, the Grandma, grandpa, Uncle Joe, whoever it may be. He lived a long or she lived a long and happy life. But the property uh, on the books had a basis of $3 million four, but at the date of the person's death was worth $10 million. So what now happens is the heirs inherit a $10 million asset. And the difference, the delta between the $3 million four and the $10 million would represent 
gain that nobody's going to recognize and the depreciation that we had taken over the years nobody is going to recognize now don't get me wrong the heirs or the estate will have either inheritance or estate taxes depending on where they live but they won't have capital gains tax and they won't have depreciation recapture tax all right so that's very that's a very interesting point because we're really talking about the depreciation recapture and the capital gains but that doesn't alleviate the possibility that other taxes may exist so while you're doing this planning is probably really important absolutely you know, owning real estate is part of your comprehensive financial plan. I mean, you, you talk to your stockbroker and your tax attorney and all of those other people. You want to make sure that everybody knows about your portfolio of real estate as well. Everyone's got to be on the same page so that you're being advised properly. And when you get to that point where people are inheriting your wealth, they're able to retain as much of it as you would like them to, because that's why you work so hard to absolutely to, to I, grow to grow that wealth during your lifetime. I can think of nothing nothing worse than having grandma or grandpa die and pass on this portfolio of real estate, and having the grandchildren have to sell it all to pay the estate taxes. Yeah, that's uh, that's not a good outcome. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. I mean, uh, not in this particular case, but uh, there are many times when I hear stories about how uh, people had many different advisors and all the different advisors weren't on the same page and really didn't know what each one was setting up. And then the event happens. And once the event happens, as we all know, you can't go backwards. And as a result, uh, there's a tremendous impact on the wealth that's been built over a long period of time, and they're not able to retain as much of it as they want. And then, like you say, to have to be able to sell a beautiful portfolio of valuable real estate just to pay the taxes, it's a shame. It's a crying yeah. shame. So that was very comprehensive. Thank you for that. That's good. I believe the listeners definitely got a lot out of that. I know I did. It's something I would listen to over and over again. What I'd like to ask you now is, are there any, is there any impact depending on how people own the real estate? So if they own it uh, in a trust, a revocable trust, an irrevocable trust, a C-corp, an S-corp, an LLC, a partnership, or if they just own it in their own name as an individual, does that have any impact on using this strategy? Not really. A 1031 exchange is available to any taxpayer. So whether I own the property directly in my name or I own it in an LLC or any other structure, uh, I can do a 1031 exchange. Now, it is important to know that obviously a corporation does not die, so there will be no stepped-up basis to the heirs when grandpa dies if he owned the property inside the corporation. Well, there are a lot of different types of corporations. Is that for an LLC or an LLC a... is different. If, if, it's, if Grandpa oh. owns the property in an LLC of which he is the sole member, then effectively he owned it in his own name. Or like or we grandma. said before, Grandma. Right. So C-Corp, S-Corp, is there, there any there difference? There are differences for other tax purposes and other legal purposes. But for 1031 exchange purposes, any taxpayer can do a 1031 exchange whether somebody should own their real estate in, in a trust or a corporation or a partnership is a matter of their personal planning. 
But you said if the corporation owns the real estate, then they don't get the step yeah, up Yeah, because basis. I don't inherit the real estate. I would inherit the corporation. So whether it's a C-Corp or an S-Corp, that would still be the case? Correct. No stepped up basis? Correct. Okay. All right. All right. So then, so then if someone plans on doing this and they wanted to survive them, then they probably don't want to own it in the corporation. They want to own it as an LLC partnership or an individual. Most, most Unless folks I'm not own getting it either that, in right? their, yeah, most people own it either in their individual names or in an LLC. Okay. David, are there any nuances with regard to the disposition asset vs. the acquisition asset in terms of types across states, across countries? Actually, there are, Bill, and that's a very important thing to keep in mind. First of all, let's start with across countries. The IRS has told us in the tax code that domestic U.S. property is like kind to other U.S. property but is not like kind to foreign property. So if I own property in Canada, if I as a U.S. taxpayer and a U.S. citizen own property in Canada, I can do a 1031 exchange with my property in Canada, but I can't buy replacement property here in the U.S. I can buy in any other country anywhere else in the world, but not here in the U.S. Conversely, if I own property here in the U.S., I can do a 1031 exchange for any other investment property anywhere else in the U.S., but I can't go outside of the U.S. Then the other distinction is what is like kind. And this is a conversation that we have all the time. People somehow have the misconception that like kind means that if I'm selling a two-family or a four-family, I must buy another two-family or a four-family. Or if I'm selling a condo, I must buy another condo. The truth is that all real estate is like kind to all other real estate with two exceptions. One, they must both be investment real estate. So your your residence or your beach home are never like kind to any investment property. And then as I mentioned a moment ago, foreign property is not like kind to US property. David, who participates in a 1031 exchange on behalf of the seller of the in, real in estate? In the transaction, well, let's start with the sale side of the 1031 exchange because the 1031 exchange, you remember, has a sale and a purchase. So in the sale side, you would have obviously your client, the, the, the taxpayer, and there's a buyer who's going to buy that, that property. And there will probably be attorneys involved in title companies and others. Then the only person who gets added to the transaction by virtue of it being a 1031 exchange, is the qualified intermediary. And the qualified intermediary is actually a, a, a new person injected into the transaction required by the 1991 regulations. And if I understand the qualified intermediary, which is also sometimes re, uh, referred to as a Correct. QI, that person is basically holding all the proceeds from the sale in an escrow account so that the seller has no control over the funds whatsoever? That's correct. If we were to dive deep into the regulations and the statute, uh, it's clear that the seller, the taxpayer, cannot have even constructive control of the cash. So therefore, his attorney can't hold it or her attorney can't hold the cash. Their accountant can't hold the cash. Their investment banker can't hold the cash. 
there must be a neutral, professional, disinterested party holding the cash. The qualified intermediary, are they present at the Most closing? Most of the times, no. We're, we're living in a wonderful world where many closings are done electronically, and certainly to the extent of the QI's participation in the transaction, 99% or more of our transactions we participate in electronically. So obviously this all has to be set up in advance, so nobody accidentally gets the money and disqualifies the and 1031. And that's important, Bill. Very, very important. The client must contact the qualified intermediary before closing. Once they have left the closing table, it's too late. And I feel bad when people call us on Monday morning and say, I, cl- I sold a property on Friday. I want to do a 1031 exchange. And my answer to them is come back to me last Friday. Yeah, that's a shame. All right. So we've talked about the strategy itself. We've talked about some of the nuances around why you would do this, how it affects basis, the fact that you can defer it over a long period of time, that your heirs can benefit from a stepped-up basis. We've talked about the different assets and like-kind, and we've talked about the people that participate on the sell side. So who participates on the buy side? I've sold my property. I'm going to buy my new one to complete my exchange strategy. David, who is involved at that well, point? Well, similarly, when you're going to buy your replacement property, obviously you're going to have your attorney and there's going to be a title company and you're buying from somebody. So there's a seller. And then we add the QI back into the mix because the QI has the cash. So you need the QI to participate um, and bring the cash to the table. And there were some time frames around this in terms of when I close and I identify a new property and then when I close on a new property. Could you share that? Data? Sure. It's important because prior to the 1991 regulations, back in the 70s, it was really unclear what timing requirements there, were, there may be. In 1984, the statute was amended and in 1991, we got the regulations and both made it very clear that if we sell our old property today, our relinquished property today, we have 45 days from today to identify a short list of potential replacement property and 180 days from today to close on the acquisition of one or more of properties on that list. So now that raises two very important points. It's actually 180 days or the due date of your tax return. So if we're starting our 1031 exchange in November, 180 days would take us out into May, but your tax return was due April 15th. So either you complete your 1031 exchange before April 15th, or you file for an extension so that you can have the full 180 days. The other thing to keep in mind is that once you identify properties, you must only buy from that list of identified properties. So clients will call me up and they'll say, David, here's my identification list. And they sent to me the the paper on day 45. And I put this paper in the file and they listed three properties. And six weeks later, they call me up and say, David, I found another property I want to buy with my 1031 exchange. It's not on that list. And I can't do it. I can't send the money to the closing because the regulations prohibit it. So it's very, very important when you identify the properties that you're interested in that these are properties that you're actually interested in. 
and you're making a commitment to them. And before you talked about 45 days from the day that you sell, I just want to qualify the day that you sell is the day that you close on the sale of that property to another buyer. It's not the day that you go to contract. It's closing date, not contract date. And that's on both ends. So closing date on the sale to closing date on the buy must not exceed 180 days. Sounds to me that the qualified intermediary is the only extra participant in this process. Am I missing something? The qualified intermediary is the only real extra participant. And the qualified intermediary essentially becomes the quarterback because most of the other people in the transaction, while familiar with 1031 exchanges, don't spend all day, every day working exclusively on 1031 exchanges. And that is why there is Riverside 1031. And it's apparent that you're an expert at this, David. So when an investor engages you as a qualified intermediary, they have a great quarterback on the field, making sure all the passes execute, that there is a reception. And at the end of the transaction before 180 days, we have a touchdown. Great. David, that's amazing. I think that takes us through from the idea of even thinking about doing a 1031 exchange and all the different steps that we have to complete in order to get to our goal of deferring taxes and eventually eliminating taxes down the road in our estate planning. Now, suppose I own real estate and I want to do a 1031 exchange, but I'm not really interested in managing real estate anymore. Uh, I know there's something called a Delaware Statutory Trust, also referred to as a DST. And then there's something called Tenants in Common. Could you just touch on that a little bit uh, as an alternative to a traditional 1031 that we just discussed? Absolutely. So in the traditional 1031 exchange, you sell one property that you run and you buy a new property that you run and you're the active landlord or uh, and, and you're responsible for the daily headaches of operation. So I'm going to interrupt you right there for a minute, David, because there's something I want to clarify. You had said uh, you buy another property and you run it. What's the definition of I run it? Suppose I you know, have a completely different vocation and I own real estate as part of my investment portfolio and I hire management companies to run it and I don't do any of the day-to-day management. Does that impact the 1031 qualifications at all? No, not at all. In fact, what you've done is you've taken a lot of the burden out of owning the investment property. But periodically, what's going to happen is that property manager is going to call you up and say, you need a hot water heater, you need a roof. The tenant skipped out and left a whole bunch of damage. So now the property manager is still responsible for the day-to-day operation, but ultimately the headache is yours on how things are going to get taken care of get to a place where you want to sell this property, you want to invest in a different property. You don't want to manage the property anymore because you don't, even though you have a management company, you don't want the headache that we just talked about. And there are these other options, Delaware Statutory Trust and Tenants in Common. So sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to clarify that, uh, the, the definition of operating. No worries. That was an important to clarify. And I'm actually going to add a third component to the alternatives. From where I sit, uh, if you're not going to be the person who manages a property on your own, you really have three options. One is tenants in common. One is, is a triple net property. And the other is Delaware statutory trust. And I'll go through them in that order. In a tenants in common situation, the three of us, for example, could 
pool our resources. We each come up with $330,000 and we go out and we buy a $990,000 building that we each own one third of. And that works really well when you have two or three or four people who know each other well, who get along well. Uh, We may each have different strengths as far as the operation of the building is concerned, whether it's legal or financial or tax, or maybe one of you is is good at replacing hot water heaters. Um, So that works really well when you have a small group of, of people who work well together. It doesn't work real well when you get... 20 or 30 people together to buy a much larger property. And it doesn't work well because in order to make the operation work, uh, the rules regarding tenants in common say that everything has to be voted on pro rata. All of the profit, I'm sorry, all of the profits and losses need to be shared pro rata and any major changes need to be voted on and agreed to unanimously. Um, I'm having a harder time figuring out how I could get 30 people to agree on what flavor of pizza to get, let alone uh, which tenant to put in the building or who sh- which vendor we should get to replace the hot water heater. Tenants in common works well in a small group, not so much in a big group. Next situation is maybe I have a little bit more money. I don't want to run the building myself, but I do want a good quality building with a good quality tenant. So you could go out and buy a triple net opportunity, and that would typically have be a, a building like maybe where there's a uh, uh, a Walgreens or a tractor supply company or a Best Buy, where you have a purpose-built building. Usually it's a purpose-built building specifically for the tenant, and the tenant is a national credit tenant. Once Walgreens has established that they want to have a store in a particular location, they don't tend to close the store too soon. They tend to stay for a substantial period of time. Their rent gets paid on the first of the month. And triple net means that the tenant is responsible for the taxes, the maintenance, and the insurance. So you are getting the rent check, net, 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 triple net of all of the operating costs. So you're basically receiving a check just because you own the property. So the next opportunity is called the Delaware Statutory Trust. And one of the things we know about a 1031 exchange is that you cannot own a an interest in a REIT or in a partnership as part of a 1031 exchange. So I can't sell my real estate and buy an interest in a REIT. That doesn't work. And let's qualify what a REIT is. It's a real estate investment trust. A lot of them are sold on financial exchanges, correct? Correct. Correct. And a lot of people own them either directly or indirectly in their IRAs or in their 401ks or through some other you know, investment strategy. And people will call us and say, I want to buy a REIT because I know at least it's still real estate. And unfortunately, in its traditional sense, a REIT doesn't work. But a Delaware statutory trust looks an awful lot like a REIT. The major difference is that it is set up under Delaware state law. Delaware has some uniqueness in its statutory provisions. So in a Delaware statutory trust, they took the the good things about a triple net opportunity, the good things about a tenant in common opportunity, they threw away the bad things, and they now bring to us a solution where we can invest in increments, depending on who the sponsor is who's putting the deal together, in increments as small as fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, and we can now own a fractional piece of 
a high-rise office building in Manhattan or a shopping center out on Long Island or, as is a real example, ESPN's corporate headquarters in Connecticut. From what I hear, David, this is a very, very popular strategy for people who don't want to manage the real estate anymore, and they can take the profits from the sale, and they can spread this over a lot of DSTs, or do they have to invest in just one? They can mix and match. Depending, you know, most of it is going to be determined by how how much cash they have and what was the value of what they sold. So if they sold a $1 million asset, then they have $1 million worth of DSTs that they can buy. Oh, and by the way, if I sell a $1 million asset, I can buy a $500,000 asset and $500,000 worth of DSTs, and it can be one big piece or a bunch of smaller pieces. Oh, that's great. So I can... I could step down in terms of the type of real estate that I'm managing. So let's say I had a 50-unit apartment building, and I'm like, well, you know what? That's too much, but I, c- I could do with 20. So buy a 20 for less money, and then I take the balance of the money, and I put it in a DST. That's really good. What am I giving up by executing a DST? Am I giving anything up, like the stepped-up basis, for instance? You're, you're not giving up the stepped-up basis issues. What you're giving up primarily in a DST is that you're locked into that investment for the duration of the investment. When these sponsors put these deals together, they set up and they, they start with the premise that we're going to hold this property for X number of years. And they, they tell you pretty much up front how long the anticipated hold is. And it's usually in the seven to nine year range. So when you buy into the ABC DST number one, you need to know that your money is going to be tied into that asset for the next seven years. It's sort of like buying a seven-year CD. There's a penalty for early withdrawal. The liquidity is not there. You're giving up a little bit of the liquidity, but you've got an asset that was uh, vetted by truly high-level property managers, run by truly high-level property managers, and you're getting a dividend check every month just because you're a nice guy. So is it a preferred dividend? Are you guaranteed a certain amount? Uh, it, it's not a preferred, I and mean, you're not guaranteed because like any other real estate, if, if there's a problem, you could have a problem. But because of the trust nature, you're not going to be called on to cough up an extra $100,000 for a new roof. So there, there is risk of loss of the original investment? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it, look, there, there are very few investments. Even if I went out and bought my own real estate, there is risk of loss, right? The market could turn south in that community. These deals that are on the street, if you buy them using a, a quality advisor from a quality provider, uh, you're getting buildings that have um, generally multiple tenants with long-term leases. You know, You do what you can to minimize your risk. And there again, you don't want to put all of your eggs in one basket. If I had $500,000, I wouldn't put it all in one DST. I'd probably put it in half a dozen. Uh, that's good. So you diversify and you minimize your risk. All right. So you're getting this dividend check, and then I would imagine you're getting it every quarter or whatever. And uh, I guess if the property did better during the fiscal year of the property, you might get an extra check at the end. Generally, if a property is overperforming, it's not so much overperforming in the cash flow 
as it is in the appreciation. They're, they're pretty good about knowing, and I could be wrong, there, there, there could be a property where they projected a 7% vacancy and it ended up with a 5%. So yeah, you'll get a little bit more. You, you tend to make your, your big money on, on the sale at the far end. So when they end their cycle, you talked about you know seven to nine years. So let's say this one had an eight-year cycle, and now you're at the eight years, and they're going to disposition that asset, and there was a 50% profit. Does that mean that you you know receive this dividend check during that period of nine years, and now you're getting 50% on your money. So if you invested 500,000 in this thing originally, now you're coming back with 750. That's correct. That sounds pretty good. And then obviously you have the opportunity to do another 1031. So you don't pay capital gain tax. Also correct. And at that point you determine whether you're going to do another 1031 or you've had enough and you want to take your money and go home. And from what I understand, you can break this up a little bit. So if you wanted to pay capital gains tax on some of the profit, you could, and then you could repurpose the balance into another uh, DST. That's correct. Can you take all your money from a DST and now put it into regular real estate that you'll go back and operate now? Absolutely. And I've had clients do that. I I had one just a couple of years ago who anticipated some, some personal life events coming up and he decided that it was not in his best interest to be a property manager for his entire portfolio. So he liquidated some of it and put that portion into a Delaware statutory trust, knowing that in his case, I think he's tied up for seven years, that at the end of that seven-year horizon, he'd have come through the tunnel for the issues that he was facing, and he'd be able to pick up the ball again and start running on the other side. So how does Riverside 1031 and you, David, guide somebody through this DST process? What's your role in that process? In, in the DST process, uh, we, we sort of sit next to the DST advisor. Our primary function is to act as the qualified intermediary. And in the case where a client is interested in the DST, but they don't know to whom to turn for the information, then we will certainly make introductions to the brokers who help sell the DSTs. So you buy the DST through a broker. Uh, just like you would a mutual fund, and the broker helps you do your level of due diligence to determine which sponsor and which property from which sponsor you want to buy. So that's a financial services broker, not a real estate broker. Correct. Correct. So just like I went to my financial services broker and he says, David, do you want to buy this mutual fund from uh, from Fidelity or this mutual fund from Magellan? and so forth, they would do the same thing with the DST from uh, from this sponsor, from that sponsor, from the other sponsor. So you're going to see a prospectus and you're going to have all the information, you know, exactly what you're getting into. Correct. David, very, very, very comprehensive information. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So the last thing I want to go over with you is some other costs associated with the acquisition and disposition of real estate, and then also get an idea of what the cost to do this 1031 exchange is. Some of the other soft costs at a closing are, you know, fees in the legal category, transfer tax fees, mortgage tax fees, 
title fees, fees to brokers and other consultants, which I guess in this case would be the qualified intermediary. Just give us a high level look at what some of those fees are. We don't need to really get into the weeds of it, but a high level. So this way, buyers and sellers have a sense of what else is going to come up at the closing in terms of costs that could impact impact the net proceeds from their sale. Sure. So when they sell a property um, for, let's use your million dollar example from the beginning, uh, you know, they, they don't get the whole million dollars from the closing table. First of all, there, there was probably a mortgage that needed to be paid off. So the amount of cash available at closing is less than the million anyway. But let's forget about the mortgage for a moment. They're going to have uh, real estate brokerage commissions. They're going to have transfer taxes. If it's a, depending on what community they're in, there may be uh, recording fees, um, payoff fees, all of those little things. And I've seen them add up to 10, 12, 15% of the total sale price. And they could be much more if it was a complicated transaction. Uh, if they were involved in the negotiation of the sale of this property for a substantial period of time, and they had an attorney involved because it was a big, complex transaction, the legal fees could be tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So there's that. But then the question that always comes up is, well, David, you know, you told me how wonderful a 1031 exchange is uh, and how wonderful Riverside is and how wonderful you are. But David, how much is all of this going to cost me? And that's a very good question. If you went around and polled all of the qualified intermediaries around the country, you would find a huge range in fees. Of course, you'd also find a huge range in fee structures. And when people ask me about fees, one of the things I tell them is that when they're going to hire uh, a surgeon, for their cardiac bypass, the first question they ask is not, doctor, how much do you charge me for the cardiac bypass? They ask, doctor, what is your experience in doing cardiac bypasses? What medical school did you go to? Those are the kinds of questions that, that you ask the doctor first. So similarly, they should ask the qualified intermediary about their background first. But if you then want to know about fees, the typical 1031 exchange fee in the New York area is around $1,500. You may find somebody who's a little less. You may find somebody who's a little more. And it may be a little bit different in other parts of the country. But in the New York metro, you're looking around $1,500 for the intermediary. And that would be a comprehensive fee. That's the documentation, holding the money in escrow, uh, consultations along the way. Considering the complexity of this, that sounds extremely reasonable to me. In, in most of our transactions, other than things like FedEx and photocopying, we're the smallest expense on the, on the closing statement. Well, David, thank you so much for all that information and for sharing with our listeners a strategy that they can apply. Obviously, we can't cover every single detail of this strategy here in the short period of time that we have together. But if people want to reach out to you and talk with you more about this and have an inquiry with you to eat, maybe it's a property they own and they're not even 
going to sell it right away, but they want to have an idea of how they should plan for it, I would imagine you'd be happy to talk with them about that. Anytime. And how would they reach you, David? What's the best way to reach you? The Riverside 1031 number is 718-226-0300. And if someone wanted to reach out to you via email, what would your email be? My email, my direct email is dgorenberg, that's D-G-O-R-E-N-B-E-R-G, at R-S, like Riverside, rs1031.com. David Gorenberg, thank you so much. Bill, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. So that's it, folks. Uh, The 1031 Exchange, we are going to take a little break here, and then we're going to return with Len Berkowitz from Tax tax advisory. We'll, uh, we'll see you in a few. Welcome back. Let's get started with Len. Welcome, Len. Thank you, Bill. Len Berkowitz. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, great. So, Len, today we're going to go over Riverside Abstracts division that you head up. Riverside Tax. Right. And in our last interview with David Gornberg, we talked about deferring and eventually eliminating the payment of capital gains tax and also recapture of depreciation tax. And what we're going to talk about in this half of our episode is tax tax, T-A-C-S tax, which is cost segregation. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this centers around the ability to depreciate that asset in different categories as opposed to one category. That's exactly right, Bill. Is there any impact from the new tax law on this? There, there actually is. There are actually a couple of things that are very impactful. Um, one of the big ticket items in the new tax law is something called bonus depreciation. Um, the IRS now allows 100% bonus depreciation on certain assets. So when someone does a cost segregation study, they're actually going to be able to write off all the assets that we would identify as personal property within a building that would normally be depreciated over five years or 15 years. They can write it off in the first year. Oh, so, okay. So that's add positive, not add negative. Oh, no, it's a positive impact with the new tax law. It's something that we're you know, notifying property owners about. A lot of people are not aware of this. It's not something that necessarily made the headlines, but it's something that's very beneficial for, for many property owners. Are there any other changes in the, from the new tax law? Yeah, there are other couple nuances. The new tax law allows... The, the new tax law has limitations on interest expense. Real estate professionals are exempt from that. They have to make an election. If they do, however, the property depreciates differently. So when did, when did this cost segregation start? Is this something that was always written into the tax code or is this something that's recent or how many decades ago? Cost segregation really picked up steam in the late 90s. There was a court case HCA versus commissioner, where HCA, Hospital Corporation of America, undertook what we know today as a cost segregation study, where they segregated the costs of the building and then classified them into the different depreciation periods. The IRS challenged this and said, well, this is something, this is called component depreciation, something that was not allowed already for many years. The court reviewed it. They said this is not component depreciation because in a cost segregation study, you don't segregate out the 
building components, only the personal property. Um, and the IRS allowed the study to go through. And from that point on, it really took off. So we're going to get into the different categories that people can accelerate their depreciation by using this strategy. But one of the questions I want to ask you, which really relates back to our talk with David and the information on the 1031 exchange, I would imagine that if someone uses this strategy, they're accelerating their depreciation so that their profit is higher because their basis is lower because they accelerated depreciation. Is that a negative? It's true. They've accelerated depreciation. They've reduced their basis. So when they sell the building, there'll be more capital gains tax. However, as we know, capital gains tax rates max out at 20%. Your depreciation that you've been taking over the five, 10 years, whatever whatever that time period is that you've held the building, um, is at your ordinary rate, which is up to 37% now. So there's a pretty good tax arbitrage there. There are some recapture rules as well that you have to be cognizant of. And sometimes there is recapture at 35% on these assets, but that can be managed. That brings me to a question that I hadn't even thought of before. David had touched on this a little bit. He said that there are two types of ta- there are two types of profit or or gain. There's two types of gain when you sell the building, and one is the actual profit, which is the difference between what you originally paid for it and what you sell it for. And then he also said there's depreciation recapture. So those are the two categories of gain when you sell a property. Yes. So let me just take it one step further. With that said, are both of them subject to capital gains tax or is one of them subject to capital gains tax and the other one subject to taxes ordinary income? It's it's a little more complex when you do a cost segregation study. Someone buys a building for a million dollars, it depreciates down to $400,000 and they sell it for $2 million. In that case, there's $600,000 of depreciation recapture. And then there's another million dollars of gain, appreciation gain. With cost segregation, what happens is the building is broken down into different sections, the different assets. You didn't sell a building, but you sold a building. You sold lighting equipment. You sold furniture, fixture, and, and other equipment. You sold cabinetry. You sold all these other assets. The value of those assets May ha- might have decreased or increased. So there is gain to be figured on that as well. Although the gain is capital, the depreciation recapture, to the extent there is any, would be recaptured at 35%. So when you sell the building, do you have to define what fractional portion of each one of these things represents in the difference between what you paid for it and what you're selling it for? Do you have to account for all of that? There's something called a purchase price allocation. And sometimes people will make a purchase price allocation to include the amounts for all the different assets that you're purchasing. And and it's more in buckets, right? You're not going to go through the list of each individual asset. It's in buckets of assets, right? So you'll take your, your, your furniture, fixture, and equipment as one bucket of assets. What's the typical amount of buckets in a typical multifamily building in New York City? It's going to be your, your building, and then it's going to be personal property. Everything that's not building will be personal property. So the boiler is considered personal property. The boiler is a building component. That's not a 
personal property. All right. So that's considered part of the building. That's part of the building. Right. So yeah. anything that's affixed to the real estate is considered part of the building? Yeah. The, the way you think about cost segregation and, and personal property is if you turn the building upside down and shook it out and whatever falls out of it, that's personal property. All right. Is the personal property qualify for the 1031 tax exchange? Well, that's that's another fantastic question, Bill. Um, under the old rules, you could 1031 personal property for other personal property. Under the new rules, you can't. However- So the new rules based on the most recent changes to the tax law. Correct. However, the interesting thing is that for 1031 purposes, the definition of real property is not necessarily the same definition as for depreciation purposes. For 1031 purposes, you look at local law, you look at other things. Many practitioners are taking the view and have taken the view in the past as well that the assets that you've defined as personal property for cost segregation and depreciation purposes is not personal property for 1031 purposes because it's all part of one building. And in fact, it's all real property. This is still a matter that uh, is being you know, discussed now, and, and we'll have to see how it plays out. Well, it's a brand new tax law, so obviously it has to be tested. Correct. And this is for things that occur in 2018, right? This doesn't uh, go back retroactively to 2017, does it? That's right. Yeah. All right. So, so if somebody was using these strategies in 2017 when they file their tax returns, uh, March 15th for a corporation, April 15th for an individual, or they get an extension and they go out to September or October, they're not going to be dealing with any of this because it wasn't in effect yet. Uh, the only thing that, that they can be dealing with is uh, there's a new quirk in the uh, tax law that when they allowed this 100% bonus depreciation, you would have thought that you would have said any property that was put in service after January 1st, 2018. But because the first draft of the law was issued in September, therefore, any property that was placed in service after September 27th, 2017 actually could qualify for this bonus depreciation. So if somebody purchased a property on December 31st, 2017, Potentially, if they do a cost segregation study, all of the assets identified as personal property within that cost segregation study are eligible for 100% bo bonus depreciation. Uh, oh, okay. And you would hope that everybody knows that, right? Yeah. And there's still time, in fact, to do this because let's say you bought property at the end of 2017. Um, and you haven't filed your return yet. You know you're on extension, which you know I think 80% of people today right, are on extension. Right. Yeah, you I can know I do that. Yeah, <laughs> so do I. <laughs> um, you can still do the cost segregation study today and reap all that benefit. Oh, all right. So this is something that is, in some respect, retroactive. It, it is. Yeah. It is. In, yeah, in, in to that a point. Regard. To a point. To a point. Len, if someone owns a property and they've been depreciating it the way you would normally do it is one asset, and now they want to switch to this cost segregation strategy, can they do that? Yes. Short answer is they can do that. And why would they want to do that? Well, they would want to do that because they'll be able to catch up on the quote-unquote missed depreciation that they could have taken had they done the cost segregation study when they purchased the building. So let's, let's take an example. Let's say somebody bought a building five years ago. In 2013, they bought a building for $10 million. A building normally depreciates if it's residential real estate, such as a multifamily building. It depreciates over 27 and a half years. 
that equates to approximately $360,000 a year of depreciation. Commercial buildings depreciate over 39 years. That would be $250,000 of depreciation. We bought our multifamily building. We've been depreciating it each year, $360,000. Now, all of a sudden, it's five years later. Someone knocks on property owner's door and says, hey, property owner, Bill, did you know about cost segregation? And you say, no, what's that? And we explained it to you. And you know, they say, you can accelerate and maximize your depreciation by doing this study, having um, someone come down to the building and identify all the personal property that exists within the building. I said, oh, that sounds great. But what about all the property that I haven't been depreciating over the five years? Well, here's the kicker. You can, in 2018, take all of that depreciation that you didn't take and take it in 2018 on your 2018 tax return. So if 20% of the cost of the building, $2 million, is attributable to personal property, you can get a $2 million additional tax deduction in 2018. And what can that be applied to? Can that only be applied to the net operating income of that particular asset? That's a, another great question, Bill. You, you got a lot of good questions. Oh, I'm supposed to have good questions. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but none of these are on the sheet you gave me. It's a trick. But you know, but the thing is, is you have amazing answers. So I'm glad that I've got good questions because you've got amazing answers. So what's the answer to that question? That's really going to depend. There are, uh, under the tax rules, there are um, passive activity losses, and then there are active uh, activity. And it really depends on if real estate is your main business. And there's definitions, you have to work 750 hours in the real estate. So that kind of goes back a little bit to what I was talking to David about, which was, suppose uh, I own this real estate and someone else is managing it for me, or I'm the one that actually manages and operates it. I guess that's what you're talking about now? Yeah, kind of. So, you know, let's say you're a doctor, right? Now, Dr. Bill and Dr. Bill has a very successful practice, and he you know, buys some real estate on the side. Dr. Bill wants to maximize his depreciation. Dr. Bill can only use the depreciation to offset the income against his real estate. He cannot use the depreciation to offset income that he earns from his medical practice. However, if Dr. Bill decided, I had enough of practicing medicine, I'm going to go into real estate full-time. And Dr. Bill goes into real estate full-time, but he still earns other income from other sources. But his main business is real estate. You'll be able, Dr. Bill will be able to use those deductions against all of Dr. Bill's income. So it really depends. Yeah, all right. So then obviously somebody who's doing this is going to be talking with their uh, attorneys and their accountants and their tax professionals and someone like yourself to help them determine what the best structure for their particular situation would be. Yeah, it's very important that one speaks to their accountant. You know, I often talk to potential clients, you know, we propose on a, on doing a cost segregation study and I ask them, I said, do you guys need the depreciation this year? Um, are you in a loss position? You know, what's your tax status? It's very important to understand that before you really undertake any type of tax planning. You need to make sure you have your accountant on board um, and re- that they really understand what we're trying to achieve here. And if we go back to the examples in the 1031 and someone does this and they have this accelerated depreciation, they're able to go retroactively back to the first five years in the example they used buying something in 2013 and they use the 1031 strategy when selling the building, they're still going to receive the same benefits as if they had done just regular depreciation all along. In general, yes. Um, 
a little more careful tax planning is required because if you don't do it correctly, you could end up paying recapture tax. So what you need to try to ensure is that you purchase a property that the personal property um, is equal to or greater than the personal property that you're relinquishing. So you really need to do a cost segregation study on your new property. Oh, all right. That's uh, that's an interesting nuance. And if for some reason the personal property on my new property is less than the personal property on my old property, then I would, I guess, have to pay capital gains tax on that difference. You'd pay depreciation recapture tax at 35% on either the uh, amount of gain on those assets or up to the amount of depreciation. So it, it, you're limited. You're limited to the amount of gain or depreciation, whichever is is less. Both you and David have probably touched on that, this already, but I'm going to ask this question again. We have two different types of gains. We have uh, recapture gain and we have actual appreciation gain. And we pay the capital gain rate, which is like in the low 20s, on the appreciation gain, and we pay depreciation recapture rate, which is 35%. Okay, tell me. So there are two depreciation recapture gains. Depreciation recapture on the building is 25%. Depreciation recapture on personal property, which is what we do when we have the cost segregation study, we identify the personal property, is 35%. Oh, okay. So if I buy a building... In your example, that has personal property that's equal to a greater that I'm not going to be subject to that 35% recapture gain on personal property. That's correct. And if I'm doing the 1031, it kind of wipes all that stuff out anyway, so long as the personal property is the same or more in the new building? That's right. So in a 1031 situation, as long as the personal property in the new building is the same or more to the personal property in the relinquished building, there won't be any... Uh, recapture tax on on those assets. But in, on a sale, there, again, there also requires planning. Often what happens is, you know, personal property, things like carpeting, you know, a lot of cabinetry. The actual fair market value of these items is very low by the time you sell a building. You own a multifamily building, you sell it 10 years later, what, what's the personal property actually worth? It's almost worth nothing. So there's no gain. That's the general strategy how to avoid any recapture tax on the personal property. So in a cost segregation strategy, you do have to identify real property and personal property, but the the personal property strategy is such that you just described. It shouldn't have as much impact as we would have to worry that it will have an impact. You know, and I get this question a lot. Cost segregation in and of itself uh, is not dependent on the value of the property. Right, we look at the cost. So you look at someone's cost basis. So again, let's take our $10 million example. Someone buys a building for $10 million. Let's say $11 million. A million dollars is land. Land doesn't depreciate. So we move the land to the, to the side. The rest of the building depreciates. $10 million multifamily building depreciates over 27 and a half years. We go in there. We do our cost segregation study. We identify 20% of the cost of the building is attributable to personal property, right? So now we have $8 million of building and $2 million of personal property. That's irrespective of the fair market value. I don't care what the fair market value of the building. The fair market value of the building could be $100 million. You don't get depreciation on $100 million. But I'm still depreciating based on what I paid for the property, right? 
That's right. I'm depreciating based on what I paid for the property. Right. And I'm depreciating based on that ratio between the personal property and the real property. Correct. So when your example, you said 80%, 20%, so that's an 80-20 ratio, and I'm accelerating just the personal property or I'm accelerating the real property too? Accelerating the personal property by identifying, well, I'm accelerating the real property by identifying the personal property that exists within the building. Had you not done the cost segregation study, your building from a depreciation perspective wouldn't have any personal property. It would just be a building for $10 million. And it would be 27 and a half years. Correct. And okay, so now using the example we just had of 80-20 on 10 million, well, really, nine million. Well, well oh yeah, no, it was eleven million. 11. Took out a million in land, ten million. Uh, now I got eighty twenty, eight million, two million. How long am I depreciating the two million, and how long am I depreciating the eight million? So the the two million in a multifamily building will generally depreciate over five years. Uh, under the new bonus rules, you you may have you may have an opportunity to write it all off in one year, but under kind of general principles, um, over five years, the eight million, I mean the eighty percent, depreciates over twenty seven and a half years still. Oh, all right. So you don't you don't really change the depreciation schedule for the real property, but you are s- sectoring out the personal property, and you have the advantage of being able to take that amount and depreciate it over five years instead of 27 and a half years. That's great. And and this bonus rule, which actually is retroactive, I believe you said September... 27, 2017. Yeah, September 27th. 2017. 2017. There's extra opportunity there. Oh, yeah. It's it's really... It can significantly benefit... Uh, taxpayers that that require or are looking for you know deductions. It's one of the things we we you know we tried explaining to people, saying, hey, if you're looking, you know, uh, under the um, the new rules, you know, there are a lot of limitations on tax deductions and things, and you know, this is one opportunity to actually increase your tax deductions. Everyone's listening to this before April fifteenth. Unfortunately, it's after March fifteenth. So if you didn't if you didn't file that extension, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but but if luck. you're listening to this and you think it's something that you want to do, uh, you can call up your account and file an extension. Obviously, when you file an extension, you still got to make sure that you paid all your taxes. But you have an extension to file, and you can actually do some retroactive planning and and maybe realize an additional benefit that you didn't know was there for you. Yeah, no, it's 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 a great tool. And even once someone files, I mean, they have a certain amount of time to go back and refile if they want to, don't they? Well, with they do in general. You can amend the return. You can always amend the return. Um, but the IRS back in, I want to say 2002 or 2003, kind of changed the rules regarding cost segregation. And it, it mostly works out to your benefit. So if we take the example we talked about before where someone purchased the building in 2013 and now it's five years later and they do a cost segregation study and they get to catch up on the depreciation, well... Some of the questions I get is, well, do I have to amend returns from the prior years because I'm changing the depreciation? And you don't. You file a form 3115, which is a change in accounting method because you're changing your depreciation method. Um, And you file that together with your tax return. And like this, you don't actually have to amend returns. So it's a pretty convenient tool to use in order to catch up on all that old depreciation. That's great. Len, when someone owns 
investment real estate and have a portfolio, whether it's one building, five buildings, or 50 buildings, you know, obviously they have a team of professionals that they work with. They have lawyers, they have accountants, and other professionals around the management of their real estate. But I would imagine that many of the professionals may not necessarily have an expertise in cost segregation. So is that where tax comes in? That's right. What we found is a couple things. Often we speak to property owners. Um, they're either not aware of cost segregation or vaguely aware of cost segregation, but they really don't understand how it could benefit them. Um, they say, doesn't my accountant do this? And the answer is, no, your accountant generally doesn't do it. The very large accounting firms have cost segregation practices, but what happens invariably is that practice is not necessarily tied into the individual tax practice or the real estate practice. They kind of operate on their own island. And people are just not fully aware of what cost segregation is, how they can use it. You know, we can help property owners and accountants uh, with that. What does the team normally consist of? How many people are involved in doing this? You know, Dr. Bill, in that example, and by the way, disclaimer, I'm not a doctor, but Dr. Bill decides he uh, wants to entertain this strategy of cost segregation. He already has his established team of an attorney, a tax attorney, and an accountant, and he contacts you or she contacts you and they say, hey, we, we want to entertain this strategy of cost segregation. Who at your end is going to be part of that team? Let me take you through how one of these kind of works. Okay. So Dr. Bill reaches out to me and says, hey, Len, you know, I heard your uh, podcast. I thought it was excellent. And uh, I'm very interested in the strategy. How can you help me with my buildings? And we would normally then reply and say, hey, Bill, why don't you send me some basic information on the buildings, when you purchased them, what you paid for them, type of property, where they're located, and then we prepare a free estimate. So we put together an estimate of, based on our experience, what we think the new depreciation will be. We send that along to Dr. Bill. Dr. Bill will then review that. He'll take it to his accountant. His accountant will look at it, and they'll come back to us. And they'll say, hey, this sounds great. Or, hey, we have some questions. Can we discuss how did we get these numbers? How did, you know, why is it 15% or, you know, or 18% or 20% personal property? Or, or maybe it's a question about the fee that we put on it. You know, we'll have that conversation with them. And, you know, at the end of the day, hopefully they're, they're, they're happy and they say, all right, you know, we want to move forward. At that point, we'd send them an engagement letter. They'd sign the letter and we send our engineer out to the building, schedule a visit. He goes out there. He spends about a day in a building taking pictures and walking through a couple sample apartments, uh, uh, jotting down all the assets that he's able to find, and uh, we prepare a report. If someone starts doing renovation on some of the apartments, does that change anything? Renovations are definitely something that can factor because, again, you're spending money on your building. And the IRS, a couple years ago, issued uh, complex regulations regarding the treatment of repairs and renovations and improvements. Right, because you have, you have capital improvements, and then you have what is considered normal maintenance. So That's right. normal maintenance impacts the net operating income, That's right. but uh, capital improvements does not, and that's handled differently. So how does that play into this cost segregation? When something is just routine maintenance and, and a repair, that just gets expensed, you know, on, on your tax return. You don't, that's not a capital uh, improvement. However, if 
the property owner has done has undertaken capital improvements in the building. Well, now we can look at those capital improvements and then we can say, well, what are the, what were the capital improvements, right? How do we depreciate? How do we start to depreciate those capital improvements, all those costs that were put into the building? And we can do a study on the capital improvements alone. Sometimes we do it, you know, sometimes a guy buys a building um, and he does the capital improvements right away. So we just include it in the basis, right? So if a guy buys a building for a million and he puts in another million of capital improvements, when we go down there, we'll just look at the building as a $2 million building. Len, you went through the steps of how somebody would explore this strategy and now they get to the point where they want to do this. What do you find is the biggest part of their decision process? Does it come down to, if I do this in an analysis, I believe I am going to save X amount of dollars in taxes and engaging a service to do this for me is going to cost me X amount of dollars. If I'm saving more than it's costing me to do this, then the net present value of that is a positive and let's move forward, right? Is, is, that, is that how you see the decision process typically going? It's an interesting um, point you raise because actually in our proposals, we actually put a percentage savings over our fee, right? And typically the percentage savings is, is in thousands because the fee for something like this is, is relatively minimal. It's kind of inexpensive. We're talking about anywhere in the range of for a, you know, maybe a million dollar building, you know, kind of a small, which is kind of the baseline, you know, anything less than a million dollars, you start to question whether it's even worth doing it. But but at a million, it starts to make sense. So for, you know, approximately maybe $3,000 to $15,000, dollars I mean, the fees for something like this are, are not all that much. And you're talking about savings uh, we're doing we're doing one now where we charged about eleven thousand dollars, and they're accelerating about two million dollars of depreciation. And how much is that going to? Well, you say you're accelerating two million dollars worth of appreciation, but how much is that saving them in actual dollars? It's saving them uh, over a million dollars. Over a million dollars. Oh yeah, yeah, over a million dollars. Over a million dollars. Yeah, and you charge them eleven thousand dollars. And we charge them $11,000. Right. So uh, if I'm doing my math right, that's a little over 1%. A little over 1%. Yeah, right. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I mean, again, what, what we find is that a lot of people aren't aware of the strategy. We, we, we try to educate them. We try to make them aware of the savings. We try to explain to them time value of money. Because the one thing you know, I do want you know, the listeners to know is that with cost segregation, we're not increasing your basis. Your basis is your basis. If you have a $10 million basis, that's all you're going to get to depreciate. So after year five, when you've depreciated the personal property, you're actually going to have less depreciation going forward. But on a net present value basis, you've made a lot of money, right? You can put this money to use, right? That's how we present. And we actually present our proposals that way. So, you, you know, to kind of illustrate that this is not just about accelerating and sitting on your money. Because if you're going to do that, then yeah, there's probably no point. The idea is you're using this money going forward. So in addition to having these immediate savings, you're also increasing cash flow and the ability to take that cash and invest it in something else, which makes you more money, whether it be real estate or some other asset class. That's exactly right. Len, are there any distinctions around 
the entity that someone has the real estate in, like a corporation or an LLC or a partnership, or if they own it as an individual? Not really. The only difference is who the taxpayer is and the tax rate. Typically, we see real estate held in in LLCs, um, which are treated either as disregarded entities when they're single member LLCs. So from a tax perspective, it's as if they don't exist or they're partnerships when we have multiple member LLCs. I haven't seen too many C-Corps uh, holding property, but if they did, there's just a, it's a difference in tax rate. So you're talking about instead of a 37% tax rate for the individuals in the uh, partnership or the LLC, you're talking about now under the new rules, a 21% tax rate for the C-Corp, but you're still getting the time value of money benefit. When do you think it's a good time for someone not to do cost segregation? You know, the, the, the time when not to do a cost segregation is someone who's a frequent exchanger, a flipper, right? Someone who's flipping properties, they're holding it for, you know, short-term periods, a year or two. It probably doesn't make sense. You're going you're gonna to pay the recapture tax. I mean, you will have the time, uh, uh, the time benefit, the time value benefit of money for that short period, but it may not really be enough to really put that money to use and really reap the the ga- reap the benefits of that. I mean, that's the case where it probably doesn't make sense. The other time it doesn't make sense is if a building is mostly depreciated, right? So if you have a building that you own for twenty years already, you, you're probably you're mostly depreciated at that point. It probably there's probably no benefit in doing a cost right, so anymore. So you're really not going to reap the benefit there. But for someone who's just buying a building or they've owned it for a short period of time, they think their holding period is going to be five to 10 years. There's a lot of advantages here that enables them to put more money to work sooner. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's exactly right, Bill. And I think that's what we try to impress upon people and explain to them that that's the real value here in cost segregation. Len, a lot of great information. Thank you so much. I understand that you brought with you today a case study of a $57 million acquisition in the Mountain West. Did they acquire that before that uh, date of September 27th? No, unfortunately, uh, Bill, they didn't. They uh, purchased it early in 2017. Oh, early in 2017. But they're still going to benefit from cost segregation. Oh, yes, as you'll see. Yeah, so share that with us, please. Sure, so... Client of ours, active investors, purchased a uh, $57 million apartment complex, garden-style apartments out in the in the Mountain West, and contacted us and asked us if we can do a cost segregation study uh, on the property. We, of course, said we could. You know, we went through the process, proposed, they accepted, off we went. We sent our engineer out to the property, spent a couple days there, you know, looking, you know, walking the property, going into some uh, sample apartments, and we came back and we put together a report. We sent the report to the client. Needless to say, they were very, very happy. Out of the $57 million purchase price, there was about a $5 million allocation to land, so that is not depreciable. And out of the remaining $52 million basis for the building, we were able to identify $10 million worth of of personal property, which they would now be able to depreciate over five years. That's $10 million. That's $10 million of additional tax deductions. If you take it at a 40% tax rate, right, you're talking about $4 million of tax savings. Over a period of five years. Correct. So I know it's not straight line, but if we did straight line, 
it would be $800,000 a year. I mean, they're still going to say $4 million. It just may not be exactly $800,000 every year. But wow. I mean, imagine being able to use that $800,000 every year and put it to work somewhere else. That, so I think in this case, it worked for them? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds really good. What happens if you get audited or do you get audited? You know, Bill, that's a great question. Cost segregation does not increase the risk of audit. The IRS has specific guidelines. They have kind of blessed cost segregation. They allow it to to go forward. They understand it. They have an audit technique guide around it. But it doesn't increase your actual risk. If in the case you do get audited, we stand behind our work and we'll defend our work product because we know our report is prepared in accordance with the IRS guidelines. In the past, you know, we've been able to defend reports with, you know, almost no adjustments whatsoever. So it's been great to be with you here. Oh, one other question. How much did that cost, the $57 million uh, uh, cost segregation? $12,500. $12,500 to save $4 million. That's a lot less than 1%. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think you can get that type of return anywhere else. Yeah. I mean, I know you... Uh, people pay their financial advisor and, you know, obviously financial advisors earn it, but they typically pay them more than 1%. <laughs> you know, we don't, we don't take a percentage of, of, of savings. Um, it's a flat fee. And um, I think uh, your listeners would find that uh, they'd benefit greatly from this. It's obvious that both you and David are so passionate about this and that both of you really, really know what it is that you're doing. And I feel really blessed to have had both of you on the show today, you know, to share this information with our listeners. And I hope they get as much out of it as I did, because I thought it was fantastic. What what made you go into this? I mean, did, did you wake up one day when you were five years old and say, hey, I want to be a lawyer and I want to do cost segregation? I don't think so. It, it's interesting. I, I actually thought I would do real estate law. I never thought I would do tax law. I kind of fell backwards uh, into tax law. Um, I started off doing a lot of international tax, um, started consulting on some real estate projects and slowly it morphed into this. And then the opportunity came about a year ago to partner up with Riverside and do it with them. And uh, it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. You know, and I want to know a little bit more about Riverside because they they had the abstract company, they have tax, T-A-C-S, the play on words for tax, and they have Riverside 1031. Oh. Right. So that's pretty much what they're focusing on at this point. So it sounds like a one-stop shop for all these different areas around planning for the acquisition and disposition of your real estate. You know, we like to think of ourselves as, a, as you said, a one-stop shop for real estate investors to provide value-added services for real estate investors and that they know they can rely on us. We have a strong name in, this, in the industry. We know a lot of people. We try to make connections. We try to really be there for our clients. So if there's something that a client needs that you're not aware of, you know where to find it. That's right. Yeah. And it's it's really not, it's really more than just a shop. It's actually an advisory. Yes, I would uh, say so. Yeah, Definitely. a remarkable advisory. Len, thanks so much for being with us today. I would imagine that some of the listeners are going to want to know a little bit more about the cost segregation strategy. As you mentioned, you will do an estimate in advance at no risk to them so that they can find out whether or not this is something that would benefit them going forward. How would someone get in touch with you? I can be reached at 718-215-5168, or 
My email address is Len Berkowitz, that's L-E-N-B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, at RiversideTax.com. That uh, phone number is your direct line? That's my direct line. Correct? Yeah, and just repeat that number again. 718-215-5168. And your email address? Len Berkowitz, one word, L-E-N-B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z at RiversideTaxTACS.com. We also have a website, www.RiversideTaxTACS.com. Thanks, Len. Thanks, Bill. It was great being here. Hi there, everyone. Thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining in for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. You can subscribe right on the player and choose your favorite platform like iTunes or Google Play Music, or just search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. Realty Speak is also on Spotify. And please share our show with others. Just choose share on the player and choose your preferred social media platform. Of course, you can always find Realty Speak or contact me on the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but about how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.